Hi, and welcome back to Data Hack Radio. This is Kunal, your host for the show. In this episode, we will talk to Yogendra Pandey, PhD. Yogendra is an artificial intelligence and data science entrepreneur with more than 13 years of experience in building intelligent systems for oil, energy, and chemical industries. He has worked with companies like ExxonMobil and Halliburton. He currently runs his startup Prabuddha.ai, which specializes in providing AI solutions to oil and gas companies. Yogendra did his bachelor's from IIT BHU and doctorate from University of Houston. Yogendra served as an executive editor for the Journal of Natural Gas Science and Engineering. He has authored or co-authored more than 25 peer-reviewed journal articles, conference publications, and patent applications. Hi, Yogi, and welcome to Data Hack Radio. It's great to have you, and uh, you know, it would be great for our community to learn from your experience in uh, with oil and gas industry. So, can you start by telling a bit about yourself, your background? How did you get into this industry? Uh, sure, Kunal. Thank you so much for having me on uh, Data Hack Radio for this podcast. Uh, my background is. Uh, by education, I'm a chemical engineer. I got my uh, B.Tech undergraduate degree from uh, IIT BHU, which is now Indian Institute of Technology BHU, mm-hmm. in 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, following that, I worked in uh, software solutions industry for about three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked with uh, CSC, Computer Sciences Corporation, and mm-hmm. SAP Labs in India. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to the United States for my PhD in chemical engineering. Mm -hmm. Uh, I specialized in high-performance computing for complex chemical and physical systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of work that I did was on the intersection of uh, high-performance computing and Mm -hmm. uh, statistical thermodynamics. Interesting. And uh, in that time period itself, I developed this uh, affinity, if you will say, for these large-scale systems and simulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the simulations that I used to do, they would run on a large cluster for months. So mm-hmm. you, it just gives an idea of the scale of the com- computations yeah. that I was do, do, doing during the grad school. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was in Houston, so the natural inclination was to get a job in Houston. It's a good market for both oil and gas and chemical industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had an opportunity of doing a summer internship with ExxonMobil upstream uh, research company. Mm-hmm. So that was my first uh, industrial or professional experience in oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, following that, uh, I completed my PhD and then I joined Halliburton in their R&D team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first few projects that I did at Halliburton, those were for structural modeling, say how the structure of a fractured unconventional reservoir will look, in particular how the fracture network inside that reservoir is going to look like. That that was my first project. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as it happens in unconventional oil and gas resources, uh, a lot of wells are drilled, so you get a lot of data. 
and these unconventional reservoirs per se are different from the one that you see in a lot of older pictures that there's a big structure is set up inside the middle of the ocean mm-hmm. so those are the conventional resources sure. unconventionals are more of more of the resources which are inland mm-hmm. and the way these resources behave is significantly different than the conventional ones mm-hmm. so a lot of uh, emphasis is put on the data analytics and uh, multivariate statistics for mm-hmm. the analysis of the production patterns and identifying the best place to drill etc in unconventionals mm-hmm. so i was part of a team uh, which was developing a product for multivariate analysis for unconventionals mm-hmm. so that was sort of uh, if you will say a basic building block for upcoming data science uh, boom which was coming in uh, oil and gas industry sure uh, and then finally uh, it was a coincidence uh, when one of my senior manager asked me to join a project team with uh, our chief architect uh, who were starting a project and eventually an entire practice on machine learning and artificial intelligence within the mm-hmm. company interesting so mm-hmm. that that's where i formally got involved with artificial intelligence and data science machine learning technologies mm-hmm. uh, i had an opportunity of collaborating with microsoft uh, they did a collaboration with halliburton mm-hmm. for a proof of concept and eventually a product for uh, their azure batch ai service mm-hmm. so it was essentially their azure uh, computational uh, resources or mm-hmm. clusters where we trained our, our deep learning based models for modeling uh, oil and gas reservoirs and uh, it had some good publicity from uh, both microsoft and halliburton standpoint mm-hmm. uh, following that i joined a medium sized oil and gas services company and then i joined a startup which was off from oil and gas industry but is still in uh, energy domain it was mm-hmm. a electricity utility company and there mm-hmm. i did uh predictive modeling for load forecasting mm-hmm. and then uh it was my calling sort of i realized that i probably want to start something of my own so at mm-hmm. that point i started my uh oil and gas and in general uh, artificial intelligence consultancy company uh, prabodh mm-hmm. llc okay. so right now i am uh running that uh, consultancy and working with clients in oil and gas uh, industry and related domains sure so sure. that has been my journey so far great thanks thanks for laying that out uh, and in terms of uh, timeline so so when was this first uh, project which you said you did with your chief architect so so which year was that and then uh, how much time have you spent in in uh, oil and gas industry Mm-hmm. so in oil and gas industry uh, i have spent more than 5 years now um, mm-hmm. it's actually close to 5 and 1/2 years uh, mm-hmm. as we talk mm-hmm. and uh, the project started sometime in the second quarter of 2016 when mm-hmm. we uh, started exploring machine learning and other interesting uh, mm-hmm. methodologies uh, just to uh, put some emphasis on the fact that oil and gas industry is a high risk industry so mm-hmm. uh, it's the, the nature of industry that makes the validation phase for new technologies a little longer 
Sure. And that that's understandable because when yeah. the risk factor involved is very high, then people have to be a lot more cautious before the yeah. they end up adopting some new technology. So I think that that has been uh, uh, one of the reasons why the adoption of artificial intelligence seems to be a little delayed, but there are a lot of things going on in oil and gas industry for digitalization, for digital transformation, for mm-hmm. automation, uh, which I'll go over in the podcast later on as we keep sure. on talking about sure. these things. Yeah, I can uh, you know imagine someone saying we didn't find oil because, uh, but I can't explain because my deep learning model <laughs> doesn't mm-hmm. tell me the <laughs> variables or why I said so. So, sure. so completely understand that part. Uh, so, uh, when was the first time uh, you know you realized that you know uh, data science or artificial intelligence is is the field where you want to kind of spend uh, the next few years in your career? So, how did that happen? Uh, I think it was uh, sometime around uh, late 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before I started the project, I was already doing courses on Coursera. And oh, interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I had heard about Spark distributed computing. So there was a natural uh, interest in that side mm-hmm. of the house, given mm-hmm. that uh, I had uh, used some of the MPI scattergather and uh, cluster computing related uh, techniques during my PhD. Mm-hmm. So, just from the curiosity point of view, I was I was trying to see what is it. I mean, what are they doing differently? What is difference between the MapReduce and the typical scattergather? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Spark is again RDD based approach. So all of all of those things were also inter- of interest for me. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was already uh, starting to look at machine learning and. Uh, other distributed computing related technologies sometime in late 2015 sure sure okay and now that you know you've you've seen this industry almost uh, you know in the last 5 years going through a transformation data science and machine learning gaining more and more prominence what are uh, you know let's say top 2 or 3 trends which uh, you see happening in industry uh, and specific areas where you know machine learning and artificial intelligence kind of uh, contributing to to the industry so one of the uh, theme would be around uh, predictive maintenance or uh, mm-hmm. equipment failure analytics that's mm-hmm. definitely one of the important uh, use case for the industry mm-hmm. uh, Another push is there around autonomous drilling rigs. So mm-hmm. basically uh, an end-to-end system for drilling, which is completely autonomous. Of course, uh, human supervision will be required. That's at least for the initial phase and maybe even after that due to the risk involved. So for but, a layman, it's basically a drill which kind of moves on its own and uh, yes. decides where to drill and starts drilling there. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, by? Yes. Yes, it, it's similar. Mm-hmm. But I'll just try to put uh, similar scenarios. If we mm-hmm. think about the uh, commercial jetliners or mm-hmm. planes, mm-hmm. Uh, all of them have a uh, autopilot facility yeah. there. Mm-hmm. But we still have pilots sitting in there because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a high-risk uh, scenario. You, do, you don't want to have no backup and just rely on the autopilot. Sure. So I would assume that for autonomous drilling rigs as well, similar kind of uh, analogy can be driven uh, derived uh, how it folds unfolds in the future that remains to be seen 
Sure, sure. So that's a big uh, use case there. And then uh, a lot of uh, data is available from the geosciences domain. Uh, for example, seismic surveys are huge and mm-hmm. uh, they, are, uh, they are very data rich. So mm-hmm. there are ample of opportunities for deep learning algorithms to be used there and automate some of those uh, workflows which are actually tedious and mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just automating those it's actually being able to process those huge amount of data because right now a lot of data just stays there it's just not not possible to use all of that data and mm-hmm. get insight that could be gathered from that data because it's just so vast amount of data that you cannot process it sure sure interesting interesting so some part of it which is manual and repetitive that can be taken care of by an algorithm which is trained uh, by experts and then it can do what experts are doing mm-hmm. and finally an expert can take a look at it and make sure that whatever it has done it's in line with the expectation of an expert sure. so mm-hmm. essentially shortening that amount of time it takes for an expert through those repetitive steps and still giving some high quality results that that would be the ideal scenario sure sure so uh, so i mean if i hear you correctly you're saying you know uh, machine learning is almost uh, or machine learning or deep learning is automating the uh, tasks of a scientist where uh, they have to deal with huge amount of data to almost you know having autonomous uh, uh, ringing systems uh, uh, in in place obviously under human supervision so let's you know kind of put a structure around some of the common applications so so can you go a bit Uh, deeper and tell us uh, you know the landscape of projects and and kind of spend a bit of time telling what are the common kind of problems uh, which uh, are solved using machine learning uh, sure i mean uh, the way i would like to do i'll just mm-hmm. go briefly over the entire uh, life cycle of sure. how a drop of oil which is lying inside thousands mm-hmm. feet underground yeah starts moving from there and comes all the way to a gas station or a petrol pump where mm-hmm. you actually get it uh, filled in your gas tank or oil tank mm-hmm. so uh, the entire industry can be broadly divided in three major segments uh, mm-hmm. upstream midstream and downstream mm-hmm. upstream part is uh, also known as e&p or exploration and production mm-hmm. so the entire process starts with an operating company taking lease of a land or acreage it can be onshore or offshore which means can be on the land or it can be marine on the sea depending upon whether it's a conventional or unconventional resource and the first thing that mostly is done is a geophysical survey so there can be different kind of geophysical surveys magnetic electromagnetic or seismic and there mm-hmm. are more kinds the most common being the seismic survey so the idea of seismic surveys you don't know anything about what's lying underneath the ground so first of all you want to try to locate where are the potential oil and gas deposits below the surface mm-hmm. uh, seismic survey works on the principle similar to ultrasound imaging or mm-hmm. even if we want to simplify it just think about how a bat flies in the dark so a bat when it's flying it emits some sound waves mm-hmm. they go ahead collide with some of the objects which are on yeah. our way mm-hmm. and then reflect back so if it reflects back then the bat knows that something some obstruction is coming in front so it it deviates it 
and avoids those kind of obstructions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So seismic works in a similar way. Uh, there's a, a source that produces acoustic energy or sound waves. Uh, mm-hmm. Normally, these are very large trucks with vibrators, mm-hmm. and then uh, these trucks send those acoustic energy subs- uh, downwards towards the uh, formation where you expect some oil or gas or other deposits to be. Sure. And then it reflects from the certain layers underground mm-hmm. and comes back to the uh, surface where you have receivers. These are called geophones, which are essentially very sensitive microphones. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you generate uh, an image which is coarse, about 30 feet resolution or somewhere around 10 feet to 30 feet or in that range resolution. Mm-hmm. But what you get out of that is a 2D or 3D picture of the entire area. And we are talking about uh, tens of thousand uh, square miles or kilometers yeah. of area for which you are doing this survey. Mm-hmm. Now, based upon this, you can understand how the formation is mm-hmm. in that area. And you also can figure out potential oil and gas deposits in that area based upon the interpretation or analysis of the seismic data. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to add that 3D seismic surveys are some of the most rich data sets that you would encounter in oil and gas industry. Sure. Uh, just to put a number on it, uh, CGG stag size survey was done in Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. and it has more than 1.5 petabytes of data. So these are huge data sets. Mm-hmm. So, so now once... And these yes. uh, surveys are done by independent third bodies or companies themselves do that and it's proprietary information? Hello listener, we are now less than 25 days away from our flagship conference Data Hack Summit 2018 and I couldn't be more excited. The summit has more than 60 speakers, 15 hack sessions and 9 workshops happening between 22nd to 25th of November 2018. Experts from across the globe including Ronald Van Loon, Terry Singh would be coming and talking at the summit. Come and join us in Bengaluru to see a world where humans meet artificial intelligence. If you are a data science practitioner, you can't miss this conference. For more details, check out the link in the podcast notes below. So uh, normally companies do these kind of survey and a lot of times it's proprietary information. Sometimes they do make it public. For example, uh, Statoil, which is now known as Equinor, they mm-hmm. made one of their North Sea data set, which contains seismic survey. Mm-hmm. They, they made it public. Mm-hmm. But most of the times these data sets are proprietary. Sure, sure. Makes sense. So that, that's the first step. So you basically get prospects based upon that. So this area may have oil and gas. Now the second part comes in, uh, which is geologists. So geologists know how the different layers are arranged when you go from top to bottom. And by layers, you mean different geological periods. Everyone knows Jurassic Park. (laughs) So Jurassic is one of the, you know, geological period, time period. So there are certain time periods and geologists know which uh, time period had these depositions Mm-hmm. when it it has high probability of finding oil and gas. So now they combine their understanding of these sequences or the layers which are in the subsurface along with the information from the seismic. And mm-hmm. then they try to pinpoint 
a location in terms of the region of land and the depth mm-hmm. where they expect that oil can be found so based upon suggestions of geologist and exploratory well or sometimes they call it wildcat well mm-hmm. that's drilled and if they find oil in that well then they start uh, drilling uh, wells around that location a few mm-hmm. more exploration wells mm-hmm. just to figure out how far along they can go and still find oil so once they have all of that uh, set of wells drilled they they do logging for these wells and by logging you are trying to figure out different physical properties for example porosity so porosity mm-hmm. tells you how much of the rock is actually hollow yeah. because that's the volume where you can actually rock can actually store oil or gas sure so those kind of uh, properties uh, other properties could be permeability that is how easily oil can or gas can flow through the rock mm-hmm. water saturation that is how much water is stored in the rock mm-hmm. so all of these detailed informations from the logs is uh, obtained Mm-hmm. and detailed models in 3d are developed so petrophysics is another discipline so petrophysicist and geologist work together mm-hmm. and then they generate the detailed 3d models and come up with uh, proven reserve calculations or original oil in place so this is a probabilistic measure mm-hmm. and it tells with 90% or more certainty that in this particular region this is the amount of oil that you can expect if you could drill and get all the oil out this is the amount of oil which is in this region with 90% certainty sure so just a, a couple of uh, questions on this one you know can you uh, give us some sense on the magnitude of costs involved in in these steps so doing those exploratory drilling to uh, you know then doing some more exploratory drilling and the 3d model which you mentioned and sure. you know uh, what are the accuracies people typically see in in these processes so if we talk about uh, drilling of a well uh, it the cost uh, depends upon whether you are having a well drilled in a offshore location that is on the land or mm-hmm. you are doing it inside the sea or whether it's a deep water say more than 5000 feet sure. depth so for a well on shore the typical costs are around around 5 to 8 million for drilling a single well mm-hmm. but if you are doing a deep water drilling then a single well might cost you 100 million dollars to 200 million dollars so that's mm-hmm. a extremely expensive process mm-hmm. if you are doing a deep water well drilling sure. in terms of the now since we already know that the amount of money you invest in drilling just one well mm-hmm. uh, definitely it has to be very high accuracy in terms mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. your prospects have to be really good you mm-hmm. you cannot drill a dry well by after investing 100 to 200 million dollars so that sort of gives you an idea of how much uh, capital is involved and how much accuracy you need to have mm-hmm. uh, for unconventionals you drill a lot of wells at lower capex so it's a little more uh, flexible in that terms mm-hmm. you, you may drill a few more exploratory wells and then mm-hmm. figure out that this area has more oil mm-hmm. but for deep water it's extremely important to be accurate when you are starting drilling first exploration well itself sure sure and uh, so basically uh, that's the scale of economy if you think in that term so once those wells are drilled then uh, reservoir engineers and uh, production engineers come into picture reservoir engineers develop a detailed field development plan mm-hmm. and by that means 
they decide a few more well locations how to drill those well how far apart they should be to produce optimally mm-hmm. and then uh, if you need to do certain kind of treatments for example everyone knows about uh, hydraulic fracturing so basically you inject fluid inside mm-hmm. the well bore and then it cracks open the rock and mm-hmm. that makes more passages for oil to flow out of it so that you can produce more oil Mm-hmm. so those kind of decisions are taken by the reservoir engineers and uh, their teams then production engineers make other kind of decisions whether they need to put some other utilities for example sometimes uh, electric submersible pumps esps are put there to increase the production rates mm-hmm. so those decisions are also taken by uh, production engineers so once all of that is done you start to produce and i missed a part there drilling of course we talked about it so mm-hmm. uh, drilling is an important part high risk high capex operation mm-hmm. and we talked about the amounts involved there so finally all of that put together the production starts now once the production starts you need to take this oil to a place where you can process it because you cannot use the crude as such yeah so that part comes to the second major segment which is midstream so mm-hmm. midstream is gathering that oil uh, processing it and by processing we can think about uh, separating oil gas and water mm-hmm. because what you get from the ground is a mixture of oil gas and water and you need to process them separately so because before you send them them to processing units mm-hmm. you need to separate these three components and then transferring it to respective refinery or other processing unit for natural gas purification Mm-hmm. and finally the storage sure so those are the parts which come in the midstream mm-hmm. uh, further transmission pipelines or vessels or ground transportation which take the refined or say final uh, product produced blend oil to gas station or petrol pump that is also sometimes part of midstream industry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then uh, downstream is basically refining process where you get the crude oil convert it to a low molecular weight oil that you actually use in your vehicles or jets or other machines uh, and blending related activities to give you a good blend that works for the engines mm-hmm. or purification of the natural gas all of these kind of uh, things come into the downstream uh, operations mm-hmm. uh, just to give you a bit of idea how much data is produced so for the drilling part in the we already talked about the seismic the data can be yeah. the petabytes mm-hmm. for drilling operations a large rig set up offshore can generate 1 to 2 terabyte of data every day sure mm-hmm. and uh, the same goes for a large sized uh, uh, downstream operation refinery it also generates about 1 uh, terabyte of raw data every day and this so, uh, drilling data which you're mentioning this is basically you know the uh, the machine drilling and sending uh, for example uh, you know uh, attributes about uh, uh, the land or the layer in real time that's what the data is yes so basically uh, there are uh, processes uh, in particular the name is uh, logging while drilling Mm-hmm. and the other so lwd is the short form for that and mwd so measurements while drilling so mm-hmm. a, a lot of expensive uh, it's an expensive process because you know sure. mm-hmm. drilling environment is very harsh so mm-hmm. whatever data you are trying to send the 
what is called uh, assembly at the bottom of your uh, drilling bit close mm-hmm. to that somewhere around that at some distance from the bottom so bha or bottom hole assembly contains some of these equipments which are very high fidelity mm-hmm. and they take the data in terms of what's the temperature pressure not just that but they also take some samples of the fluid mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a lot of data regarding the environment of that particular region where the drill bit is currently working is sure. obtained mm-hmm. from these measurements so one of the parameter that you can actually get is rate of penetration so how fast your drill bit is moving downwards mm-hmm. and then you may have some uh, kpis key performance indicators so you want to maximize the rate of penetration or you want to reach certain depth in a given day time mm-hmm. period because drilling is an expensive process you you are paying maybe a million dollar for deep water drilling per day yeah. so you want to maintain an optimal rate or an accept, acceptable drilling rate mm-hmm. as you drill the well and complete in say an acceptable amount of time so that the project does not overshoot the pre-plant capex sure. so so yeah drilling does generate those kind of data mm-hmm. and uh, other data comes from the surface uh, equipments so you also have to inject drilling mud and other uh, chemicals mm-hmm. which are required for uh, drilling process so you also have the rates how much uh, drilling mud you are injecting what is the rate uh, similarly when you are doing treatment once the drilling is done you get the data for other uh, treatments for hydraulic fracturing how much uh, fracturing fluid you are injecting mm-hmm. so those readings are also available at the surface so i mean from end to end drilling and completion cycle of a well you get a lot of data in the process which you can sure. use for developing models and doing predictive analytics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. uh so yeah i mean so that was a broad outlook Uh, mm-hmm. how you get a drop of oil from 1000 feet below the ground so mm-hmm. starting from the prospecting then uh, geologist coming into picture after the geophysicist have provided the seismic survey mm-hmm. in pointing one location or locations where you can get the oil estimating how much oil is there passing mm-hmm. on all of that information to reservoir engineers who mm-hmm. then come up with a plan how to explore how to produce from that particular field and then the production part comes in sure. crude oil starts coming out to the surface from the uh, ground and then it's flown through the pipelines and other transportation modes to a refining facility mm-hmm. so the stream part is there and then refining facility are the downstream facilities where you get that purified natural gas or the oil in the form that you can use in your vehicles or in the aeroplanes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that that's the entire uh, cycle that goes behind the scenes mm-hmm. now where can we use uh, data science or artificial intelligence in different sections i'll try to pick some use cases which are sure. pressing ones for each yeah. of these segments and mm-hmm. probably give a bit of not too much detail but it more of an overview of each of these use cases yeah. and why they are important mm-hmm. so starting with the upstream part uh, the first part where we talked about seismic and we discussed how these seismic data sets can actually be uh, petabytes in size mm-hmm. so 
few important informations that come from the seismic data are about the horizons. So mm-hmm. by horizons, we already talked about Jurassic period. Yeah. So each time period has a different uh, signature or characteristics in terms of how that particular layer of ground looks. Mm-hmm. So the top and the bottom of that layer, you can consider those as horizons. Those layers which uh, distinguish it from another period, you can consider those as horizons. Sure. So if you have a seismic uh, volume, how would you actually under figure out where these horizons are? Mm-hmm. So if you have labeled data based upon the previous experiences uh, or previous models developed using the seismic data, mm-hmm. you can use that use your training data yeah. and train a deep learning model given mm-hmm. the size of the data that you have. It's a good candidate for deep learning technologies. Mm-hmm. So you can use those uh label data sets and come up with a model which will be able to pick those horizons automatically. So geophysicist or a geoscientist does not need to sit and do that tedious job of picking all the points along the, that horizon. Sure. But once the algorithm chooses these horizons, there is a quality control step where a geophysicist can come in, start looking at it. It will be a lot easier process to just tell that particular uh, model, this point was not picked correctly. I think this is where it should be. Mm-hmm. And that's an opportunity for reinforcement learning. So as the geophysicist mm-hmm. or a geoscientist is correcting what was predicted by the machine learning algorithm, sure. you can, in the background, retrain the model so that the next time when the model runs, it will do a better job at picking the horizons. Got it. So that that's one of the use case. Uh, a similar one is uh, automated fault interpretation. So faults are more of a discontinuity. So think about you have a brick, mm-hmm. and everyone has seen those uh, activities Damage. where karate players come in and they <laughs> just yeah. smash the brick. Sometimes they smash it in pieces. Sometimes they smash it very clearly. Mm-hmm. So think of it that someone very hard in a very hard way very hard-handed way press the ground on one side so it shifted downwards on one side and the other side remained up Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's essentially what a fault is caused and these fault lines are the reasons when the adjustment happen these fault lines Mm -hmm. uh, earthquakes happen so well that's outside of the oil and gas industry uh, (laughs) that's essentially what a fault is so Understanding faults is very important because when there are faults, mm-hmm. a lot of fractures are there in the nearby area. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in terms of the facilitating flow of oil or hydrocarbons, mm-hmm. these areas close to fault have more fractures and they can give you more oil and gas production. But you also have to be careful. You don't, I mean, you want to avoid faults when you are drilling in mm-hmm. certain scenarios there can be problems. Mm-hmm. So you need to know where the faults are for from an operational standpoint and even from the modeling standpoint mm-hmm. in order to make a good model so that you can uh, reconcile the layers correctly so yeah. that you can shift things up and down and then you can make a good model. You sure. need to know where the faults are. Mm-hmm. So again, we can go back to that uh, same kind of approach. Mm-hmm. If you have enough seismic data, yeah. Uh, someone can pick those fault lines or the fault planes mm-hmm. and then use that labeled data as the training data, mm-hmm. run that model, 
process a new seismic data and figure out the faults in that uh, <laughs> seismic volume. And then a geoscientist can sit in and do a quality check on it and make sure that the fault that was picked by the machine learning algorithm actually matches or meets the expectation of a geoscientist. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in the background, you can have a reinforcement learning uh, running, which will improve the, the models. Mm -hmm. So more or less, these are uh, semantic segmentation tasks. If you put in uh, computer vision or image processing uh, sense, because uh, fault by itself will be, there will be multiple faults in a given uh, seismic volume. Mm -hmm. And uh, you need to mark the segments which contain the fault within a seismic volume. So it's a problem uh, which would broadly fall under the semantic segmentation kind of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a competition on Kaggle recently by a company called TGS, and they it ended last Friday. Oh, okay. They had made available uh, 2D seismic images, and mm -hmm. they had another interesting use case uh, on which the Kaggle competition was focused. Mm -hmm. So it was called a SALT Identification Challenge. Okay. So Basically, SALT is uh, something you don't really, uh, well, I mean, it's there at the bottom somewhere. And since mm -hmm. it's lighter, it keeps yeah. on coming upward. Yeah. It moves sure. upward in the in, inside the rocks. Mm -hmm. And then it makes uh, reaches to a point where there is a very uh, impermeable rock. So it cannot go any further up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it starts depositing there and uh, that rock also stops oil and gas from going up and it also stops salt from going up. Sure. So okay. now this salt, dome-shaped salt, starts working as a trap for the oil and gas. Mm -hmm. So if you know that certain region has uh, salt, mm -hmm. you start to look in the nearby region for a possible reserve of oil and gas sure. so from that point of view identifying salt domes is important mm -hmm. the other thing is also from the operational safety point because in certain scenarios you don't want to drill through a salt uh, dome or mm -hmm. you want to take cert make certain drilling related decisions based upon knowledge of presence of salt sure. so mm -hmm. the idea was to take these seismic images and some of the images were labeled where mm -hmm. you know that these pixels are actually depicting a salt deposit mm -hmm. and then train based upon those labeled images and then use the test data to predict which pixels actually have salt deposited uh, deposits in the seismic images which are provided for testing purposes. Got it. So again, that was also a sem semantic segmentation uh, mm -hmm. image mm -hmm. processing problem. So those are the broad use cases within the geophysics part or the seismic processing part. Gives a good a good overview at least for the drilling part and the the first part of the upstream process. Sure. Hello, listener. We are super excited for the launch of two new courses: natural language processing using Python and Tableau Visual Best Practices. Go from good to great. Both the courses are created by experts in these fields. The course on NLP has been created by Shivam Bansal. Shivam has more than five years of experience as a data scientist and has worked on several industry problems related to NLP. He has also been an active blogger on analytics with there and has a knack to simplify things and explain them in a very simple and lucid manner. The course on Tableau has been created by K. 
Kate Strashny. If you have been on LinkedIn, you would know about Kate. She is a top influencer, an author of multiple books on data science, and creator of Humans of Data Science. All the content which Kate has created is coming from real life experiences and would help you become great at creating visualizations. Kate has mentored more than thousands of people through her work and through her LinkedIn posts, and I am really excited to announce this course on analytics with you. Both the courses are currently running on introductory discounts, so go and check them out on trainings.analyticswithya.com. Yeah, uh, going further for the geology and petrophysics, as we discussed, that uh, a lot of, uh, not a lot of, but a few exploration wells are initially drilled, and you have logs available from that, so you know what the porosity or the void fraction in the rocks is as you go down mm -hmm. the rock. So based upon that, you can, in 3D, you can get this data. These data points are there. And now the challenge is to build a 3D model in a high resolution based upon that. Mm -hmm. So that's another place where you can uh, build a regression model. Mm -hmm. And that regression model can effectively tell you what are going to be the properties or say porosity or another property in the different regions of that reservoir. Mm -hmm. And now if you know these properties in different parts, then you can do clustering based upon these attributes or properties. And then you can tell that this part of the, say, entire formation, the rocks in this part and this part are very similar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you know that this part of rock was a source rock or this was a reservoir rock, which produced, from where you were able to produce oil, you can actually mark another section as a reservoir rock. So you sure. know that if I have drilled here and I could find oil here, then this is another part where I can drill and potentially find oil. Got it. Got so it. a combination mm -hmm. of a regression-based 3D model generation using mm -hmm. machine learning mm -hmm. and then unsupervised learning clustering mm -hmm. to yeah. find similar kind of prospect mm -hmm. based upon one part where you were able to find oil. Sure. So that's the geology and petrophysics part. And then going to the reservoir and production engineering, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of work that uh, reservoir engineers do is uh, based upon the forecasting and it's classically called uh, decline curve analysis. Mm -hmm. So there are some predefined functional forms which are used to fit the production data in the mm -hmm. oil and gas uh, production uh, history sense. Mm -hmm. So if we can use machine learning based uh, algorithms for predicting the or forecasting the production mm -hmm. from the wells that can actually give additional information or higher accuracy to uh, reservoir and production engineers some of the algorithms that i can think of i mean uh, well hidden marco models are one of the basic uh, algorithms that you can use for time series predictions yeah. mm -hmm. but you can also go to a more advanced uh, recurrent neural networks, uh, for example, uh, mm -hmm. long short-term memory, LSTMs, yeah. or gated mm -hmm. recurrent units, GRUs. Mm -hmm. So you can use those algorithms to uh, predict or forecast how much production will be there from an oil well in future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, based upon that, if you know that some wells are not going to produce well, then you can look at the history of the other similar wells and mm -hmm. figure out what was done for these wells that actually improved the production or outcomes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So sure. then 
it will help you in identifying a suitable completion or cover strategy, which will eventually give you uh, better production outcomes from a given well. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming to the production side, a big use case that we discussed in the beginning was uh, predictive maintenance or mm-hmm. equipment failure analytics. Mm-hmm. So as we talked, sometimes uh, electric submersible pumps or ESPs are used to accelerate production or increase the rate of production. Mm-hmm. One of the problem with ESPs are that since they are submerged inside, that mm-hmm. environment causes high failure rate of ESPs. Okay. So when one pump fails, you mm-hmm. practically don't have a way to continue production at the same rate. You have to take it out and then put it back. Sure. And if you don't have a spare, then you have to wait for it. Those mm-hmm. scenarios can also happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. So if there is a sensor data coming in from the ESP and you can predict ahead of time that this particular pump is going to fail mm-hmm. and you have already a replacement available and you can plan the replacement ahead of time. So if you are planning some activity which will reduce the production, mm-hmm. you can replace the ESP with that time so that you don't end up having a lot of non-productive time. Sure. That can actually help in uh, making production more streamlined and reducing the non-productive time. So that's mm-hmm. another use case. Now we went through the production right away, but there was a piece of drilling which mm-hmm. I am coming now. Mm-hmm. Uh, drilling is, as we talked, very high capital expense and very mm-hmm. high risk operation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So creation of autonomous drilling rigs is a challenging task and one that will require a lot of uh, accountability and I would say a lot of validation before it actually becomes something mainstream. Yeah. But what does it really mean from a data science and artificial intelligence perspective? Mm-hmm. Uh, it It's not going to be just the software part of it. There's going to be an interface with robotics and automation yeah. side also. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we look at the drilling rig, it's a living IoT if you want to say that. Mm -hmm. A lot of sensors are there. All of that data is coming in. Very interesting statistics I was reading on a Cisco web page about a drilling rig, especially Mm -hmm. the offshore ones. Mm -hmm. So as we discussed it, a big sized drilling rig will end up producing one to two terabytes of data in a single day. Mm -hmm. Now, if we we don't have fiber optics, if the drilling rig is placed further somewhere inside the sea only way we can transfer that data is through the satellite links so consider a two <laughs> megabytes per second satellite link mm-hmm. you will need 12 days to transmit the data that you generate in a single day in a single day wow <laughs> so so basically if you if you think of transmitting that data and then making some decision on drill drilling rig uh, you'll be getting a decision 12 days later so you right. cannot do that yeah. so a potential uh, solution for that that i was reading from the cisco website is uh, using edge analytics yeah so you practically need to bring that intelligence on the rig so that's that's actually another push mm-hmm. why you want to make the drilling rig autonomous all the sure. intelligence will be there on the drilling rig mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that itself is a big use, use case and uh, there are always news coming in. Uh, for example, uh, Schlumberger was in the process of buying a lot of uh, drilling rigs because mm-hmm. they want to start doing pilots for mm-hmm. autonomous drilling rigs. 
other companies like uh, Neighbors is another company which is heavily involved in drilling uh, mm-hmm. and related automations. They are also making efforts in that direction. So a lot of efforts are going in to autonomous drilling recreation at this mm-hmm. time in oil and gas industry. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, we already talked about minimizing the non-productive time and mm-hmm. it can happen in multiple ways. Uh, one of that possibility is there of a kick. So I'll just briefly tell about kick. So normally mm-hmm. what happens, you have production of oil from these wells and mm-hmm. oil is not actually at very high pressure it's the gas that actually is very at very high pressure yeah so if during some operation if you suddenly hit a pocket where there's gas at very high pressure mm-hmm. that gas starts to release and then it quickly comes comes up towards your surface assemblies mm-hmm. and uh, there have been instances when that movement of gas is not detected normally they put a blowout preventer that's an equipment mm-hmm. which keeps that gas from blowing all the other uh, surface assemblies because if sure. that happens the gas comes up it's catastrophic in nature yeah but sometimes you know things happen and you mm-hmm. don't want to those kind of situations so if you can develop a system based upon the sensors which can give you an early detection of kick so that Mm -hmm. the operators or the people who are performing the operations have enough time to remedial actions and uh, contain the amount of you know inclement uh, consequences which might happen that will be really valuable from the health safety and operational perspective yeah so early kick detection based upon the sensor data Mm -hmm. that's another uh, very rewarding uh, use case yes. and then there's uh, other use case in drilling of stuck pipes mm-hmm. uh, you know sometimes you may be so the pipe by pipe you mean the drilling pipe or the mm-hmm. drilling uh, process you have a pipe that's going inside the well yeah and in certain scenarios when you are turning it towards the horizontal direction or in some other scenarios it might get stuck mm-hmm. Now, if that happens, then you have to stop drilling. You have to get that pipe out by certain means. Normally, it's called a fishing process. Mm -hmm. So certain vibrational frequencies are used and you try to bring that pipe out. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of non-productive time is encountered when that happens. So Mm -hmm. if you know certain parameters or attributes during the operation Mm -hmm. that you can use in a machine learning model, and as the pipe is going down, you can predict if it goes any further, then it will get stuck in the well bore. Yeah. You don't go any further, you just pull it out. That would also help you in reducing a lot of non productive time and in terms save you a lot of money. Got it. Got it. So that's th- those are the use cases from the upstream uh, part. And definitely, upstream industry is a lot more capital intensive. So there are more use cases from that side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do have a few from midstream and downstream, uh, and both of the midstream and downstream, of course, have the equipment failure analytics part mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. For uh, midstream, it will be more of pipeline integrity. Yeah. So leakage or any other kind of uh, corrosion or some kind of failure that might happen in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. If you have sensors along the pipeline and you are getting the flow rates or temperature and pressure readings, 
based upon that, if you can predict uh, possibility that there will be a failure, a leakage, or another kind of failure in the pipeline, if you can predict that ahead of time, yeah, then a lot of environmental consequences which might happen from the spill of oil from the pipeline mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. if the gas leaks happen, you can you can avoid those. Sure. So that's another predictive analytics use case for midstream. Mm-hmm. Similarly, for the refineries, refineries are essentially a forest of equipment. So if you pass by any refinery, you will see it's a, a zillions of equipments which are or machines which are there in the refinery. Mm-hmm. So even there, regular shutdowns happen and maintenance is done. But if you can, based upon the sensor data, predict that these are the particular equipments which need replacement because these are close to failure. Mm-hmm. then rather than having to do something impromptu or unplanned you can actually replace those equipments during a plant shutdown sure sure Makes so, sense. so that that's a use case of predictive maintenance for the downstream industry mm-hmm. and then for the downstream industry there's also a material informatics uh, related uh, use cases basically uh, we can use data science and uh, machine learning for designing and development of uh, materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you one such example, which is uh, based upon how efficiently you can store hydrocarbons. For example, mm-hmm. there are uh, frame, covalent organic frameworks or COF or COFs and metal organic frameworks or MOFs. Mm-hmm. And these have very high capacity of absorbing uh, methane inside of that. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at a data set which was available. So mm-hmm. basically from experiments, you can compute a lot of uh, structural uh, parameters for these stru- these particular, uh, what I would say, assemblies, molecular assemblies. Mm-hmm. And based upon their molecular structure information and these attributes, you can predict how much natural gas storage can these structures provide you sure so that's another uh, machine learning application there where Mm -hmm. you can use machine learning and uh, predictive analytics for designing advanced materials Mm -hmm. so that's another uh, great use case for downstream industry sure sure uh, which i can think of so those are the broad use cases that i was uh, thinking about discussing there are definitely a lot more use cases which Mm -hmm. can be thought of but again uh, in the interest of time i would Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, yeah the range is uh, is mind-boggling and and uh you know to be honest, I've learned a lot more uh, about applications of machine learning in last one hour than, than I would have uh, done by reading or finding this information online. So, so th- you know, uh, it's it's a well thought, a ton of information out there. And, and I'm sure, you know, that there is a lot more. Uh, but thanks a lot for, uh, you know, sharing those use cases, sharing those details. It, it definitely uh, gives a very good perspective uh, on on the uh, applications and what kind of work is happening in the in the domain uh, i also wanted to spend uh, a few minutes before we kind of uh, wrap up the podcast on on your current company and then you know what you do and um, what what are you building and any any vision or anything which you would want to share about prabuddha as, as a company 
so uh, we are in uh, very early stages i would say at this point mm-hmm. uh, being into the projects that we are doing for about 4 to 5 months most of the times what we are trying to focus on are some of the problems that i have discussed here mm-hmm. uh, i am working on them with uh, the clients mm-hmm. uh, but the overall my goal is to eventually go not just oil and gas industry but going beyond that because mm-hmm. uh, if if we look at the potential of uh, data science and oil and gas uh, industry it's mm-hmm. definitely tremendous in nature yeah but there are also other tangential industries as we talked about uh, materials industry there mm-hmm. are a lot of other industries which actually benefit oil and gas industry in an indirect way sure sure mm-hmm. and also when we think at the entire energy spectrum uh, mm-hmm. there are energy resources beyond oil and gas industry as well mm-hmm. so the eventual idea is to go in that direction and explore the entire uh, energy industry and the possibilities of using data science and machine learning sure. for different problems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in sure. the energy industry great great and one uh, you know la- uh, final kind of question so uh, if a community member wants to learn more about uh, you know these applications or work which is happening what are some of the resources which you can recommend which people can either read up or maybe some res- place to find research papers or work which is happening anything which you can share sure so uh, there are a few magazines in oil and gas industry uh, <laughs> journal of petroleum technology or jpt is one mm-hmm. uh, they periodically cover uh, the latest and the greatest happenings in oil and gas industry and in particular there have been uh, entire issues dedicated to digital transformation in oil and gas industry mm-hmm. uh, so that's definitely one great resource to follow mm-hmm. if people want to stay up to date with what's happening in this sure. particular domain mm-hmm. uh, other than that uh, from time to time uh, the big consultancy companies for example uh, mckinsey or accenture mm-hmm. um, even other uh, forums for example world economic forum they mm-hmm. keep on publishing a uh, very high level and authoritative uh, review reports mm-hmm. which tell you the state of uh, current state of uh, digital transformation for the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. so i think all of these are really good resources sure sure thanks thanks for uh, sharing that thanks thanks uh, yogi for uh, taking time out uh, and then ta- walking us through these details of uh, oil and gas industry as i said at the start you know uh, it's it's a uh, industry where information is not easily available something which uh, which uh, hopefully would change in incoming times but uh, but a lot of exciting work is happening and and uh, you know uh, uh, i i came to know about these autonomous rigs and the kind of investment which is happening there uh, today so so a great learning for me as well sure yeah i mean uh, so one of the uh, report mentions that oil and gas industry is currently using less than 1% of the entire data it generates wow <laughs> and not all the data that's generated it it's not all available i mean there's mm-hmm. a big effort that needs to be done for breaking the silos and making data available making yeah. it a data democracy 
Mm-hmm. So th- those are the sort of things which definitely need some effort, but mm-hmm. the potential of doing a lot of great things with the amount of data available in oil and gas industry is there, and I'm sure that yeah. industry is going to take the full advantage of the data that's available with it. Sure, sure. Thanks, thanks, Yogi, for your time. Thank you so much for giving this opportunity to join you for this podcast. Really appreciate that. Sure, thanks, thanks, Yogi. Thank you.